Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, even through faith, and this is not the result of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and join us in Ephesians chapter 2. That's where we're going to spend our time. And I realized up top, I did not introduce myself. My name is Travis Cunningham. I am one of the pastors here. So nice to meet you. As you're making your way to Ephesians 2, uh, just a quick question. Did any of you grow up watching Extreme Makeover Home Edition? Raise your hand. All of us watched it, okay, but I'm just going to, in case you, you don't remember how it went or you didn't watch it, I just want to kind of invite you into how that show worked. So uh, that show was completely nuts. The main dude, Ty Pennington, like that dude consumed an alarming amount of caffeine or was completely cracked out. And he, so what, what he and his team at ABC would do is, is they would receive nominations of families that were seeking renovations of their homes. And so maybe an example would be something like this. There, there's a, a young teenage boy and through a tragic car accident, he gets paralyzed from the, the waist down. And because the family, maybe they're a low-income family, they don't have the money to, to renovate their house or they don't have the ability to go out and buy one of those wheelchair-accessible vans. So they're just kind of reeling and they don't know what to do about this. So their friends and their family would nominate them and say hey, we want this family for ABC to come in and, and redo this house. And so what would happen is, is they would pick a family and then Ty would come rushing into this family's house at like 5.30 in the morning, like way earlier than this service started. So come on. And, and he'd rush in at like 5.30 with a megaphone and he would scream at them like, wake up. And this, this family's like coming out of their bedrooms, they're rubbing their eyes. They don't know what's going on, trying to figure out up from down and left from right. And he's like, we're gonna renovate your house and you have 20 minutes to vacate the premises because we're sending you to Disney World for a week. So they're like, well, is this actually happening? Like, what's going on here? They go, like, just hop in the limousine and hope for the best. And Ty and his team comes in and, and they begin renovating this house. They take it down to the studs and redo everything. And the family enjoys a week in Disney World. And then they come home and right as they're arriving from the airport, they just so happen every time to be screwing in the final light bulb. I don't know how it worked. They just did it every time right in the nick of time. They got it. And so uh, the family would get out of the car and they'd be ready to see their new home and then there would be an RV blocking it, right? And they cut to commercial break right at that point and everyone was just kind of figuring out what's going on here. And then what would they scream together? Move that. Come on. Let's try that again. What'd they scream together? There we go. We'll have a little participation here. I like the energy, guys. 
And then the bus would roll away. They would see their new home, complete new paint job, new landscaping. They see a, a ramp now for this young man to get up into his home. And then Ty and his team would take them through the house and show them that they renovated every square inch of that house and made it wheelchair accessible and able for this boy. And, and then the family would just kind of start figuring out life as is now. Now, I wanted to share that because what's going on there at at the point in the show where they move the bus and the family gets overwhelmed with gratefulness and and thankfulness, any of us that have like a fraction of a soul, at that point, we're kind of like in tears, right? It's like, oh my goodness, look what ABC did. Look at what happened. And what's going on there is a complete and utter transformation of this home. I mean, think about this. This TV show had all the right ingredients for transformation. There there was a normal life. This kid was living a normal life, and then it gets ruined through a tragic accident. And then devastation begins to set in amidst the ruin. They, They begin asking themselves, what do we do now? And as they can't answer that question, hopelessness begins to set in because they can't figure out how are we going to afford this? How are we going to pay medical bills? How are we going to renovate this house? And they just become resigned to despair and to hopelessness. And then Ty rushes onto the scene and there's kind of this glimmer of hope. They're thinking, is this true? Can this really be? And then there's that waiting period when they're in Disney World. Maybe this isn't really happening to us. And then they pull up from the airport and the bus is blocking the home and they're thinking, man, this might be the last second. It's not real. This isn't really happening. The bus rolls away and they finally see this brand new home, this beautiful home, and they figure out, wow, this is true. Can it be? It is. This wasn't a dream. And then they become overwhelmed with thankfulness and gratefulness. This is the reason why that show worked, because it had all the right ingredients of transformation. But let me tell you something, that show is but a small echo of the redemption, of the transformation, the goodness, the glory, the grandeur of the transformation we experience in the gospel. It's just a small echo of it. And so as we explore, my beard is too long, guys. It's my playoff beard. So as we explore Ephesians chapter 2 together, I want to do it with extreme makeover in the backdrop. And I want to think about it through the lens of, of transformation. I really kind of want to frame it up in, in a Broadway play. Okay, any, any play fans out there? Okay, there's a few. I've been to one in my life, and I was like 12, and didn't love it, but I learned something. And so what, what, the way a play works is there, there's act one, and there's an intermission, and then there's act Two. Okay, so we're going to start with Act 1. Let's reread verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 2 together. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the good life ruined. This is the devastation amidst the ruin. This is the hopelessness that sets in when we are devastated. This act of the play is titled Sin. This act of the play is titled sin. I mean, think about the terms that the Bible is using here to describe our fallen state before God. The best way to sum this up maybe is totally helpless. Paul here, the author of Ephesians, is saying we are dead in our transgressions and sins. Elsewhere in the Bible, we we will be told that the wages of sin is death. 
Now there's something universally true of everyone in this room. Every one of us is going to die. Death is inescapable. Death is unavoidable. You cannot do anything to avoid death. You might even see throughout the Bible some some crazy and rare miracles where a dead person is raised to life, but most often that happens through the ministry of Jesus Christ, and never do you see a dead person raising themselves to life. Dead people do not make themselves alive. And, And Paul doesn't say, you're on your deathbed, because when you're on your deathbed, you might have a miraculous turnaround. He doesn't say we're, we're sick because of our sin, because sick people can medicate and become well. He doesn't say we're questioning things and we can go find the answers. He says we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and you cannot raise yourself to new life. But Paul, being the good arguer that he is, doesn't leave us any room to wiggle out of this and say, maybe this doesn't apply to me. Let's, let's look at some of the things he says. Verse two, he says, we are following the course of the world in our sin. We are following the prince of the power of the air. Verse three, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, the scriptures are gonna tell us there are three ways we can account for all evil and all brokenness in this world. There's three primary ways. Number one, we live in a broken world. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see God creating everything perfectly. God and man and creation lived in harmony with one another, and God's presence with his people was unhindered. But then Genesis 3 happens, and sin fractures everything, and all of that is broken now because of sin. So category number one for evil and brokenness is the world. Category number two is Satan, and we see Paul here say the prince of the power of the air. That is Satan, the evil one, accounts for a lot of brokenness in the world. And then the third category in scriptures is our own flesh, and Paul says that there, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body or the flesh and the mind. So Paul is saying all of us are dead in our sins and our transgressions, and we have all willfully participated in all three of these ways. We are following the world, we are following after Satan, and we are following after and living in our own sinful desires. He is saying we are totally helpless to escape this reality. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, As salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you are deceived. In translation, we are totally helpless because of our sin. We cannot raise ourselves to new life. Paul will also say here in these verses and argue that we are utterly hopeless. Again, listen to some of these descriptors. He says we are walking, or we are dead in our sins and trespasses, following the world, following Satan, living among the sons of disobedience, children of wrath, carrying out our sinful desires. These are descriptors of a hopeless person. The Bible will teach us that sin is like a cruel slave master that enslaves us and we have no choice but to follow after our marching orders from our sin master. I recently heard a pastor by the name of Andrew Wilson describe these words, these words walking and and following and, and what's really going on here, the imagery behind these words is kind of a military analogy. 
What he's saying when he's saying walking or following is that our sergeant is telling us to take the next step, and as good, obedient sinners, we do that. We take step by step by step. And if you're familiar with the military at all, when your sergeant gives you orders, you do not disobey. When your sergeant says jump, you say how high. When he says walk, you say how far. And this is how Paul would describe our sin when we're following after the world, when we're following after Satan, when we're walking in our fleshliness, what we're doing is obeying the marching orders of our sin sergeant. We are keeping in step every single way. We are in chains. We are in bondage to these things, and our shackles are so tight that we cannot free ourselves of them. So how do we come about this state of being totally helpless and utterly hopeless? It's by our sin. It is by our sin. Act one is entitled sin. And the New City Catechism would define sin like this. What is sin? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God and the world he created, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and distance from our creator. And I think a lot of times what we're going to do because of our human nature, when we hear this, this overwhelming description of our sin, we're going to immediately default into playing the comparison game. We're going to look out there and compare ourselves to others. We're going to see what's going on in the news. We're going to see what's going on around us. And we're going to say, at least I'm not like him, or at least I'm not like her. I know how my neighbor acts. I know how my spouse acts. I know how someone else acts. I'm not like them. So we hear this definition here, and we must see that every one of us is included in this. He says, or the New City Catechism says, sin is rejecting or ignoring God. Guilty. He says sin is not being or doing what, is, what God requires in his law. Guilty. Sin is be, results in our death and distance from our creator. Guilty. All of us in this room are willful participants in this sin, resulting in our death and separation from our creator. So let me sum up act one of this play. Uh-oh. Welcome to launch service where we start with the bad news. <laughs> but now look to verse four with me where it gets really good. Just the first two words. But God. But God. You see it there. This is the intermission of the play. These are the two greatest words of the Bible. You know, uh, in act one, the, the, the story is so enticing. Playwrights, what they're going to do is they're going to overwhelm you with, their emo with, with your emotions. They're going to overwhelm your minds. And, and what you're going to do if you're in a play in act one, you're going to be so overwhelmed, you're not going to realize, oh my gosh, I need some water. I'm kind of hungry. I need to go to the restroom. You don't realize this, so playwrights are kind to us and, and they press a pause right there in the middle of it. They flip the lights on and say, okay, now... Now go get some water, use the restroom, do what you got to do. And this, this is what Paul is doing right here. He, he has overwhelmed us in verses one through three. I don't know about you, but when I read those verses, I feel a, a crushing weight of condemnation. I feel a crushing weight of separation from God because of my sin. And, and it's like I'm drowning in the waters of sin and I'm trying to scratch my way to the surface to get a breath of fresh air. And in this moment, the intervention of God, we get that breath of fresh air. But God, we get it right there. This is the moment in extreme makeover where the family's looking at Ty and they're thinking, 
Can this be true? Is there a glimmer of hope? When we read this and we see the intervention of God, we almost have to pinch ourselves to wake ourselves up from a dream. Can this be real? And to convince you that this is true and that this is real, Paul appeals to the character of God. He says God is rich in mercy. He said God possesses a great love. He, said that God, he says that God has an immeasurable amount of grace. He says God lives, or gives us kindness in Christ Jesus. These are glorious character traits of our God. Let's explore them together for a second. Paul says God is rich in mercy. God possesses not just a little bit, but an abundance, an overflowing amount, a wealth of mercy. And when we're talking about mercy, we're we're saying that God in his goodness and his gentleness and his tenderness has not given us the punishment we deserve for our sin. A punishment so severe, if you think about how estranged we are from God, how much we have rebelled and sinned against God, what we are deserving is a punishment so severe we probably can't imagine it. And yet Paul says God is rich in mercy. He withholds our punishment and Christ gladly drinks our cup of wrath. This is God's mercy. He says not only is God merciful to us, but God possesses a great love. We aren't deserving of God's mercy. It is God's love that compels his mercy. God possesses such a great love that 1 John 4 will say that God is love. God in his very nature, God in his very character, God in his very essence is love. This is why God has chosen to give us mercy. And then Paul will say God has a grace that is impossible to measure. If if you're familiar with kind of the universe, most scientists will say that the universe is continuing to expand. It's ever expanding. And as they study the universe, they're discovering more stars and more planets and more galaxies with each passing day. But friends, it is easier for us to study and wrap our hands around the expanse of the universe than it is to wrap our hands around the amount of grace that God has. It is so much easier to comprehend the stars and the galaxies than it is to comprehend the amount of grace God possesses. He has an immeasurable amount of grace. And the grace God has for us is the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus in our place. That Jesus, when we have that definition of sin, that we, don't, we, we aren't who God requires us to be in the law, Jesus perfectly fulfills the law. He perfectly obeys the law. He lives a sinless life. And then when he hangs from Calvary's cross and our sin hangs him there, he gladly gives us his life and takes our, our, our life on his shoulders. And he bears God's wrath in our place. And then he lays in a grave that we dug for him. But on the third day, friends, he didn't stay there and decay. He got up and walked out and he gave us new life, now victorious over sin, death, and the devil. This is Christ's grace for us. We now have life in him. And God is kind, Paul says. God is kind to us in that he stoops to us to make all of this understandable that we can comprehend the gospel of Jesus Christ and the free gift we have in it, that is God's kindness to us. This is how R.C. Sproul will describe God's work in the gospel for us. 
God just doesn't throw a life preserver to a drowning person. He goes to the bottom of the sea and pulls a corpse from the bottom of the sea, takes him up on the bank and breathes into him, or, and breathes into him the breath of life and makes him alive. This is the gospel. Christ died our death that we might live his life. This is the intermission. This is but God. And you can even say the whole scope of scripture is written along the lines of these two words, but God, that starting in Genesis 3, all we have over and over again is the intervention of God on our, on our behalf. We pinch ourselves and we don't wake up because it's not a dream. This is the one true story, friends. Next, let's read verses four through nine together. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is act two of the play. And act two is labeled salvation. Act two is labeled salvation. Now I learned this past week when I was on a phone call that, that, that good plays, right, on Broadway, they're defined by how good act one is. But act two usually doesn't keep up with act one. But what separates great plays from good plays, like we're talking Les Mis and Wicked and Hamilton and whatever else, what separates great plays from good plays is not only, not only does act two keep up with act one, but act two actually far surpasses act one. And this is what we have here in the gospel. If you were overwhelmed by verses one through three, man, be overwhelmed by verses four through nine because this is salvation in Christ Jesus. This is act two entitled salvation. This is the climax and the finale of the play. This is when the family in extreme makeover arrives home, the bus rolls away and they see everything brand new and how glorious it is. And Paul is saying, because of the intervention of God, look upon Christ and see the glorious transformation you can have in him. He says, we go from being dead, being sons of disobedience, from being children of wrath, to now alive with Christ Jesus because of that but God moment. This is how Paul describes our new position. You are now alive with Christ, alive in Christ. He says you are raised with him. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. This is beautiful. You have gone because of Christ from being totally helpless to totally saved. Saved in totality, complete, fully, freely, forever, forgiven in Christ Jesus. This is salvation from death to life. And I think all too often, many of us believe that, that God kind of enters into our lives and, and we profess faith and he saves us and then he kind of steps back and just watches things and says, figure it out, chap. I just said chap in a sermon. <laughs> Any Brits in here? <laughs> we think God is like, say, figure this thing out. What are you gonna do? 
But friends, the way Paul describes our salvation is that it is the work of God from first to last, from start to finish. God has saved us, is saving us, and will save us. We are saved totally in Christ Jesus. I mean, think about this for a second. Are you hearing Paul's words here? He says, you have been saved. You have been made alive with Christ. That's past tense right there. You have been saved. He says, you are raised with Christ. You are seated with him. That's present tense right there. This is your position in Christ right now. And then he says, in the coming ages, you will experience the fullness of his grace. That is future tense right there. From first to last, from start to finish, salvation is the work of God. And friends, God does not fail. God is not stepping back saying, figure this whole thing out. He is carrying us through. And no matter how tightly we can cling to him, he clings all the more tightly to us. And he will not let go of us. He will not let us down. It doesn't matter the strength of your faith. It doesn't matter the life you're currently living. If you are a believer, Christ is saving you and will ultimately save you. It is the work of God. You are totally saved. And not only that, He says you go from utter hopelessness to utter hopefulness. In our sin, all we had was despair and hopelessness. That's all we had. But in salvation, all we possess is hope. That's all we have. This is where that text, when it says, in the coming ages, he's gonna show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards Christ Jesus. That's where this text is so beautiful. That's what we hold out hope for. That's the day we are looking forward to. Paul says you are raised with Christ. You are seated with Christ. And when he's using that language, he's using already not yet terminology. So here's what that means. Right now, if you are united to Christ in faith, in a spiritual sense, you are raised with Christ. You are seated with him. And now you possess the power to overcome sin in your life. This is true of the believer. But we are not yet fully there. That day is coming. That day is surely coming when we will fully, in a physical sense, be resurrected with Christ in his pattern of resurrection. We will be there with him. And this is the day we set our hope upon, the day that we will forevermore experience the fullness of God and his presence forevermore. This is the day when all sad things will come untrue, the day when all sin will be removed, the day when Satan is ultimately vanquished, the day when all disease is defeated, the day when all wrongs are made right, the day when we will with unveiled faces look upon our risen, exalted King Jesus. This is the day when the fullness of his presence is returned to us and all of our desires are satisfied in him forevermore. This is the day we're looking forward to, friends. This is the day we have set our hope upon. We are utterly hopeful and we look forward to that day with great confidence, knowing it is coming. The Bible will say hope is having a confident assurance that this day is coming. Why do we possess that? Look at, back at eight, verses eight and nine. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast. This is why we possess confidence, assurance, hope, because this is a free gift of grace. You see, if salvation, past, present, and future were up to me, I know how that would go, and it wouldn't go all too well. 
But this is totally a free gift of grace from God. And I am utterly confident that he is going to finish what he has started. The scriptures say that. The scriptures say that God is the perfect promise maker and the perfect promise keeper. Every promise that God has made to us finds its yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And God will fulfill all of his promises he has made to us. And so if you are united to Christ, every single promise that God has given you is going to come to pass, including that Christ is coming again and he's gonna resurrect us to new life in the new heavens, in the new earth. And so we stand in awe, full of wonder that our God has saved us and sealed us into the day of redemption. And we possess hearts of hope. Friend, no matter the doubt you're currently experiencing, no matter the anxiety you possess, no matter the questions that remain unanswered, no matter the sin that you currently struggle with, no matter the disease that you cannot defeat, no matter the loss that is hard to get over, whatever it may be, we look at those circumstances and we look right through those circumstances and we fix our gaze upon Jesus Christ, our risen, sure, steady Savior who is ruling and reigning in perfection at the right hand of God now and forevermore. And so we possess hope in all things because of Christ. This is the moment in the Broadway play where the hero has come through. The girl is rescued. The city is set free. And this is the moment in the one true story where our hero has come through. And our hero is Jesus Christ. He is the only true hero of the only true story, the gospel. We have hope. So here's how I want to begin to close. There's a moment I used to look for in Extreme Makeover Home Edition. This is when Ty and his team would kind of vacate the premises and the kids would be up in their room. They'd be playing with all their new toys and figuring things out. And mom and dad would just kind of settle in on the couch or maybe they'd be at the new dining room table and they would just look at each other. They kind of had like blank stares, right? And they had a combination of like terror and excitement and joy and fear because life as it used to be is no more. There was a lot of question marks. There was a lot of unknowns. They didn't know what to do with what had just happened to them. They're trying to figure this new life out. And they just kind of look at each other and like, guess we'll figure it out as we go. And this is what we must do with the gospel. This is how we must deal with the gospel. You cannot brush the gospel aside. There may be a lot of unknowns. There may be a lot of unanswered questions. There may be a lot of, I don't know how this whole thing works and, and life is so new now, now that I heard the truth of the gospel, but you must deal with the gospel because you must deal with God. So I wanna offer up a few ways in which we can deal with the truth of the gospel presented here in Ephesians 2. To the believers in the room, to the disciples of Jesus, you know the gospel but you must continue to meditate upon, dwell upon, saturate yourself in the gospel. We never graduate from the gospel. We never move on from the gospel. We stay in the gospel. So believe, believers, where in your life have you settled into a, a, a state of hopelessness or helplessness? And how can you let Ephesians 2 lift your eyes to see hope in Jesus? Let Ephesians 2, believer, restore to you the joy of your salvation in Christ Jesus. 
And then something I often try to do is I try to read verses one through three often here of chapter two and then imagine where my life would be had God not intervened. And imagine the separation, imagine the punishment, and imagine what was coming for me because of my sin. And then I ask the Lord to give me a heart of compassion for my friends and family and, and, and those around me that I might be compelled to share with them. Verse four, but God. Friends, let us dwell upon that and let this compel us to greater gospel mission because of what is coming for those separated from Christ Jesus. To the non-believers in the room, to those of you who, who do not recognize Jesus as Lord and Savior, I'm thankful you're here and I'm thankful you just heard Ephesians 2. And my prayer is that you would, you would deal with it. You have to. You have to. Let me plead with you. The only right response to the gospel is to repent and place your faith in Jesus. To repent is to look at verses one through three and say, guilty, sinner, condemned, that's me. And then to turn from that and look to Christ Jesus and place your hope, your trust, your faith in him. And he will surely save you. He will do that. That is your only option to receive hope and salvation and confidence in Christ. And I think many of us operate from a place of like, come into a building like this and you look around, you think, I don't fit in here, I'm not like others. I, I got a lot of sin and baggage and addictions in my background. I gotta clean myself up a little bit before I can come to Christ. Don't believe that. Every one of us in this room is a sinner and has fallen short, every one of us. We all share that in common. Come to Christ now. And you might think, I gotta work up this effort and conjure up enough strength to be able to possess this faith that I might receive salvation. But friends, faith in of itself is a gift as well. All you do is receive it. You don't gotta conjure up effort or, or energy or strength or whatever else. And here's the truth of the scripture. Your faith is not about the strength of your faith. It is about the object of your faith. And the object of your faith is Christ Jesus. And he is unfailing and he will save you. You don't have to have any bit of strength more than Jesus, I believe. And you will be saved. And my prayer is that you will repent and place your faith in him. As the band comes up, let me ask you to bow your heads and, and close your eyes. <clears throat> Father, we, we love you. We thank you for the free gift of the gospel, the free gift of grace, the free gift of faith. I ask that you would grant faith today. I ask for those who are separated from you right now that they would be united to you through Christ. I ask for those who are rebelling that they would let go and come to you. I ask those for those who are far off that you would draw them near God. I ask that you would grant salvation from this place today. And I ask that you would, for all of us, restore to us the joy of your salvation. Lift our eyes so that we might see Christ Jesus. Spur in our hearts, God, worship of you. You are the only one worthy of worship and adoration and affection now and forevermore. So God, I ask that you would do that. In Christ's name, amen.